0: Some people really were touchingly brought closer and recognized things in their uh, mates that, you know, they appreciated and revered. So some of that was quite moving to read, but, you know, other people just got really fucking sick of the person they were with, like really, really fed up in, you know, detailing in minute um, you know anecdotes like noticing that the person counted out the number of blueberries they would eat at breakfast every morning you know just noticing these things about the partner they really had started to not be able to stand and of course I loved that stuff I'm kind of a button for bad relationship stories <laughs>
1: Welcome to The Unspeakable Podcast. I'm your host, Megan Daum. My guest is author Laura Kipnis. Laura is a revered and, in some circles, worshipped cultural critic and the author of seven books. She's here to talk about her new book, Love in the Time of Contagion, A Diagnosis. It is, in some ways, a follow-up to a book she published nearly 20 years ago now, Against Love, a polemic. And in that book, she sought to dissect, in her trademark frisky and counterintuitive style, the very concept of romantic love. We live in sexually interesting times, Laura wrote back then, meaning a culture which manages to be simultaneously hypersexualized and to retain its Puritan underpinnings in precisely equal proportions. Love in the time of contagion was born out of the emotional chaos of the pandemic and her own lockdown with her longtime boyfriend. Laura examines how the cracks in interpersonal relationships can mirror the breakdown of political systems, economies, and public trust. And in this conversation, we talk about what she learned from interviewing dozens of people who are locked down with their romantic partners, or in some cases, their soon-to-be ex-romantic partners. We also talk about the evolving legacy of the Me Too movement, the impact of online pornography, the role of alcohol in life and in love, and BDE. Or so called big dick energy. I also asked her what's happened in the aftermath of her previous book, Unwanted Advances, which chronicled a journey through the campus court system after students filed Title IX charges against her for publishing an article in the Chronicle of Higher Education that they claimed created a hostile environment. You heard that right. Now, here's my interview with Laura Kipnis. Laura Kipnis. Welcome to The Unspeakable. I'm so happy
0: to be here with you.
1: Your new book is Love in the Time of Contagion, A Diagnosis. It is, in some ways, a follow-up to a book you published a while ago now, back in 2003, a book that is often cited and beloved by many, Against Love, a polemic. Uh, In the years since, you've published, I think, four other books. Did you ever think you'd return to this subject, or did recent global events kind of push you in this direction?
0: No, I didn't really think about returning to it until I was um, forced into domestic cohabitation during the lockdown phase of the pandemic. And I realized I had a lot to say on this subject. And, you know, I was a kind of um it was like being embedded with a a foreign tribe and I started taking notes on the situation. Um but you know I returned to it in a different state in that I this time around am coupled though in that living apart together mode of coupledom whereas when I wrote Against Love almost 20 years ago, I was not in any official way coupled. So that changed the writing situation and obviously the thought process and everything else a lot.
1: So the foreign tribe being your your boyfriend, your your yes. partner. Is that what is that yes. is that your nickname for him? Foreign is that your tribe. kind of nickname? Oh, <laughs> thanks foreign tribe. Yeah. So what was going on uh, specifically that that drove you to uh, to such madness that you had to start writing another book?
0: Well, you know, one thing just to go back to the other question, the previous one, um, one of the things about writing about love that's so great is there is something that just makes language open up. You know, it kind of lends itself to this, I don't know, like flowery flowing sort of language or a lot of metaphors and analogies. So, you know, I guess in that sense, it's a great subject. But in, you know, the more immediate uh, situation, I mean, one of the things it just was hard not to be aware of was in the context of lockdown and the pandemic, how much coupledom is this like venue and forum for all sorts of neurosis and neurotic acting out and projection and displacement and all of that. So it was just like, you know, day by day, a sort of psychopathology of everyday life or everyday you know, relationships to draw on. So I probably could have written many volumes more on household neurosis.
1: And did you just sort of start out saying like, well, I'm going to write a personal essay about what's going on or something like that? Or did you feel that there was a book in this? I did think it could
0: be a book. Yes. Um, I wasn't sure exactly what type of book it would be. And you know, it's a more personal book, I think, or more directly personal than other things I've written, because I did feel like you couldn't really write at this remove. And I usually am more comfortable writing at a, a kind of, you know, imperial distance from my subjects or maybe an ironic distance. And while well, you're a cultural
1: critic. You you write yes. often with that through, through that lens. You're not you're not you're not a memoirist by any means. And this well, is I have memoirist, memoirist envy.
0: envy.
1: Oh God! You know. really? Well, you
0: I, you know, I certain memoirs. I mean, you know, you know how much I love your essay about your mother's death, and you know, there's a kind of access to emotions that I think other people have in better, greater quantities than I do. So,
1: you know, there was. <laughs> Are you saying you're autistic? This is what we talked about uh, in a recent episode. Uh, somewhere definitely on that spectrum. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> I
0: think I pass as a normal human, but um, yeah. I, I think okay. I have a certain kind of maybe coldness or intellectual distance on things, which is in many ways helpful, But um, as a writer, I do envy writers who seem to have more direct access to the life of the emotions. So I did feel like there was, I was uh, kind of opening up this new, uh, what do you call it? Opening a new vein, mining a new vein. Um, Yeah, opening it up, bleeding on the page. So all of that. But, you know, it it was like interesting to write in this different mode, which was more directly personal.
1: So, I, I think we should say in full disclosure that you and I are friends, IRL, in real life. And uh, I remember talking with you early in the pandemic, and you said you were doing a kind of field work or virtual field work about people's romantic or cohabitating situations in, in quarantine. Was there like a formal process to that, uh, to the research element, or did you just kind of start poking around on Facebook? How did that work?
0: Well, I should add that we became friends when you asked me to write an essay for your book uh, collection, Shallow, Selfish, and Self-Absorbed. Selfish,
1: selfish, Shallow, and Self-Absorbed. Sorry. and Nothing has changed since then for me anyway,
0: but yeah. Right. Well, and that was actually my only previous foray into personal, you know, writing about my personal life directly. So thank you for that opportunity. And now I, I can't thank you. Now I can't be stopped. Um, So I did, you know, when I started thinking about writing this, I thought, well, what is going on with people? I mean, I was looking around on on social media to see what people were saying, but I ended up putting up a survey online and asking people, this was anonymously asking people questions about people who were coupled or cohabiting with a, a lover or partner, asking them, what that had been like and what they had learned about themselves and their partner and would they have sheltered with this person if they had known a pandemic was coming. And so this was in August of 2020. So maybe six months or so into, you know, the first wave of, of COVID and I got about maybe 200 or so responses. And so that did start me out and the responses were really wonderful because people, a lot of people, you know, had had this time to do nothing but reflect, you know, on their on their lives. And a lot of people just were very eloquent and interesting about what they had been through. And some people had been brought closer to their partner and other people were on the verge of splitting up or had already split up, you know, but with um, just interesting minutiae uh, stories about daily life, interests first. So, so that was kind of the inception.
1: You do cite some statistics, but I think just, you know, more importantly, like anecdotally, do you get a sense of, did, did, did the pandemic make people's relationships worse or, or better? I mean, because, you know, the, the stereotype is that everybody started hating one another and everyone started drinking and everyone just became a sort of, you know, worse version of themselves. Um, it, it, how how closely does that hue to what you found?
0: Well, yes. I mean, the answer to every either or question is yes. I, I don't know the large scale answer. You know, there were right, uh, like the first few weeks, there were all of these articles online about how, or, you know, in print media, um, how relationships were faring. And then, when there was uh, the first opening, I think that summer divorce lawyers were saying that there were, you know, they had this deluge of calls about people splitting up. And then later we heard that was, uh, you know, false and people actually were sticking together and it was a reverse trend. So I think no one knows, but everyone is fascinated with that question. And I think it'll be years before really the dust settles on this. So just, You know, on the basis of what I just certain from this survey, I mean, some people really were touchingly brought closer and recognized things in their uh, mates that, you know, they appreciated and revered. So some of that was quite moving to read. But, you know, other people just got really fucking sick of the person they were with, like really, really fed up in, you know, detailing in Minute, um, you know, anecdotes like noticing that the person counted out the number of blueberries they would eat at breakfast every morning. You know, just noticing these things about the partner, they really had started to not be able to stand. And of course, I loved that stuff. I'm kind of a button for bad relationship stories.
1: Well, yeah, because you you talk about um, a couple of examples where you get into kind of intense dialogue with friends of yours, people that you've known for quite a while, who are really confiding in you about their relationships and about their breakups. And so you kind of, it's almost like, I, I felt like some of these subjects were almost having an emotional affair with you. Did, did, was was there an element of that in your discussions with yeah. people?
0: Yes, definitely. And, you know, there was this thing that happened called Zoom. And, you know, I think it really did change how we communicated with people, and particularly in these lockdown circumstances. And if you were in the East, you know, I was in New York. For part of that time, it just was, you know, so miserable you couldn't go out. And so you ended up having, or I did anyway, these pretty intense relationships over Zoom. And two of the chapters in the book are based on – these Zoom relationships. And one was with um, a former student of mine um, who's black and queer and millennial and was out there dating a storm up and really having kind of a great time during lockdown. And we had lengthy conversations. This is somebody I'd known for maybe six or seven years. Um, But, you know, we did become much closer and she confided a lot in me, but while also bemoaning that she was an oversharer, but it was this incredible entree into this world of millennials and particularly the way they use social media and digital communication. It's like all of their relationships are triangulated with their devices in, in ways that were kind of fascinating and also the way there's, their relationships play out in these kind of village uh, almost context, you know, because they're putting everything online and everybody's commenting on and judging um, what they're doing and people expose each other and, you know, complain about their mates in these, their these secret Instagram accounts called Finsta. You know, so I learned a lot about all that. And then the, there was another chapter which I titled love on the rocks where I talked quite a lot with somebody who I knew not that well before this, but we ended up in these Zoom conversations and he had left his wife um, slightly before the pandemic and his wife had been a drunk or as he put it, a mean drunk and things had finally come to a head and now he was single, but he still was in this post-breakup kind of mentality And uh, we had a lot of conversations about this idea of codependency and what, you know, and I was arguing to him that I thought codependency was the sort of template of every relationship. And he was arguing to me that codependency was specific to life or a relationship with a drunk or a substance abuser. And so we had a lot of back and forth about what is, um, what is this thing, codependency? Because, you know, so many people use that terminology as they do other terms like narcissism. So there's, there are these, you know, relationship diagnoses that everybody throws around and, and hurls at other people, usually not so much at themselves. So it's kind of trying to explore what are these newfangled pathologies of relationships. And, and also this idea of substance abuse, you know, particularly alcoholism, you know, and how it played out in, in, in people's relationships, both during the pandemic and generally.
1: Yeah, you have a great line about narcissism. You say, narcissism is a usefully mobile label for everything we want from other people, don't get and never will. Uh, <laughs> I, I, I think that that pretty much nails it. Although you're right, every everyone is a narcissist these days. You say You say everywhere you go, someone's complaining about narcissism. I mean, the codependency thing is interesting because I mean, I I think of it in a negative light, just as far as jargon goes, but I mean, others would argue that you can't really have a a close relationship, a close intimate relationship with a partner if there's not an element of codependency. So I don't know. How do you kind of sort through that?
0: Yeah, I kind of agree with that. I'm not sure why everyone is so certain they know what it means. It's one of those just amorphous kinds of terms that can be applied to anyone or any uh, relationship you think didn't go well. And, you know, I had understood it uh, originally to mean these relationships where somebody's kind of enabling somebody else's substance use because they like something gratifies them in that situation. You know, so that's kind of pathological, you know, like you're lying for the mate who's drunk and can't get to work. So there's that version of it. But then there is also the just yeah, excessive neediness version where you're not really your own person um but yeah i i myself am confused i wrote a chapter on it i've read everything online that there is and i myself am still confused about what what is it
1: yeah you know you also i was really struck by a an anecdote you, you said someone in your circle accidentally noticed a work email on her husband's or her partner's computer to have sent to it sent sent to a colleague Uh, and so she wanted to, she was jealous that her, that her partner was emailing this person who was like attractive or, you know, desirable in some accessible way. And, and she wanted to, I guess she wrote, what did she do? She, she wrote to the person and it was completely batshit, whatever she did. So describe this.
0: She wrote to the colleague, to her husband's colleague, who he had been emailing with in some work-related way and said that she wasn't comfortable with them corresponding because her husband or partner had previously had some kind of emotional affair with somebody else that he worked with. And um, I thought, oh my gosh, you know, the things one thinks is a good idea, (laughs) you know, in the moment.
1: Well, you have a great line. You write in no world in no world was this a good idea. But by that point in the pandemic, every marriage had become its own unique, failed state, mirroring geopolitical conditions worldwide. I mean, and also that also got me thinking about this idea of marriage as a as a failed state. Like you, you know, even even under the best of conditions, forget the pandemic. Aren't all sort of long-term relationships just kind of infused with so much? sacrifice and compromise that, depending on your definition of a failed state, that would apply?
0: Oh, I think that's absolutely the case. And, um, you know, I said, I I think at best, a relationship is a neurotic pact, you know, that works. Uh, You know, I mean, in the best cases, it's a neurotic pact that works. Like you find somebody where your neuroses are like a good mesh with the other person's neuroses. And, you know, I kind of did come to think that my own situation was, was that it was like a neurotic pact that worked, but I, I also kind of do a little riffing on things that I was streaming during the pandemic. And I got very, um, addicted to serial killer stories, but you know, there's so many of them out there <laughs> as
1: an aspirational kind of viewing. Well, what do you mean? <laughs>
0: Well, I guess, uh, you know, I guess measuring your relationship against that relationship, because there is this romance. I mean, their romance with the serial killer figure, but also a lot of the shows are about what, particularly women, becoming kind of oddly entranced with serial killers, you know, like Ted Bundy, of course. And, you know, and and there's an attraction to them. And so I kind of talk about that as the you know, best definition of a neurotic pact, where, you know, for the woman, you know, she gets this thrill of the alliance with the dangerous man, but he's also locked up. So that makes it safe. So you get it both ways. Um, so I, you know, thought I would have to go back and read the passage which I don't, to, to be more eloquent to vet it. But, you know, that is an example of a workable neurotic pact. So I, I was, my humor was tending in a dark direction at that point. Well, you were
1: also watching a lot of dating shows or, or d- dating kinds of contests. And I have to say, I never watched those sorts of shows. I've never watched even one. I don't think I've seen 30 seconds of, of The Bachelorette, for instance, or any of that stuff. But what, you know, as as a, as a very sophisticated uh, cultural critic uh, and, and academic, what did you take away from some of this programming?
0: Thank you. I'm I'm silently giggling here about that sophisticated thing. But um, Indian Indian matchmaking was really a wonderful show. And part of what I took away is that I had always been very interested in matchmaker jokes. There's like a whole lot of Yiddish matchmaker humor. And I had read these Yiddish humor books as a child when I was like stuck at my grandparents uh, on Sunday afternoons. So, you know, Freud and, and the early psychoanalysts have a lot of stuff that's interesting about these matchmaker jokes and the way that the morals of the stories is usually got something to do with accept this person's flaws because you're going to get the flaws anyway, eventually in a marriage. But so you might as well know the, the flaws that you're um, you know, going to end up with from the beginning as opposed to be to be surprised by them. So um, the matchmaker joke is this kind of commentary on long-term relationships. But the show Indian Matchmaking, which is the global capitalist update on this, was really fascinating because, um, you know, a lot of what it's about is that people both want to uh, you know couple and settle down with somebody and also they're incredibly ambivalent about it and usually that ambivalence takes the form of this pickiness about the traits of the other party you know like there's this one um i can't, what's her name Aperna i think uh is one of the, the characters in the first season Aperna had a way of finding something wrong with everyone that she was potentially matched with And, you know, I see that among a lot of people I know, you know, that there's always something wrong or potentially wrong. Uh, And, you know, of course you can, um, you know, I mean, my God, you know, I'm like a, a whole sea of red flags, you know, waving. If anybody were going to enumerate my red flags, I, you know. Oh, you mean be, as a
1: as a potential person to as date? A potential. Oh yeah, yeah no. Yeah, I, yeah. Oh yeah, yeah. I, I mean, well I, could, I, I I would challenge you there. But yeah. Maybe there should be a real there should be like a contest like uh for the most the, the, the least oh, dateable for, women.
0: <laughs> I like that. The red flag contest. All right. Yeah. yeah. Critical bitch being at uh, the top of the list of for me.
1: <laughs> okay, so you're watching these shows. Like, you know, you don't actually talk a lot about uh, the world of of dating apps, you know, and and just the sort of tyranny of options that I think really has has changed the equation for not just dating but relationships. I think people they date. For, I mean, this is old news. They they date for longer. They date more people. They 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 have a sense of a sort of vast horizon of possibilities. And I always thought that that was a Ultimately, a detriment to actual relationships. Like the, the fewer choices that you are aware of having, I think the better outcome you will have with the person that you choose. And this is the oh, "do as I say, true. not as I ever did or would do" school of advice.
0: Yeah, we're not offering advice here. Um, yeah, I think that's absolutely true. Yeah, and I did not get into that a lot, partly because it's kind of familiar. You know, I got into it a bit in the chapter about my former student. who I call yeah, Zelda. We we're going to talk and,
1: about Zelda, yes. But get, yeah, oh, okay. We're going to get, get to her.
0: Yeah. <laughs> okay. Okay. But yeah, no, I didn't talk about that part. You know, um, as I said, it seemed like fairly hashed over territory, and I was trying to write about things I felt like I had something slightly novel to to say about. Uh, which that I'm I'm not sure. Other than yeah, it's like a shopping cart. And you're, you know, checking out the, you know, you've got this basket full of potential dates, and, but I agree with you about the ex- excess of choice impeding everything.
1: Yeah, and I also, I, you know, I, I've said this before. I, when I was in my twenties, and you know, th- thought of myself as a very sophisticated urban person, I would like look down on people who coupled up too early in their twenties, for instance. People, if if people got married in their twenties, I just I would think that was like terribly unsophisticated or something. And now most of those people have the best marriages I know. And I sometimes wonder if it's because they just, they, they sort of, well, a, they quit while they were ahead (laughs) because you tend to, you know, the younger you are, you know, there, there are more people to choose from. Right. So you can, this is actually sort of obviating what I said before, but like you can choose, there are more high quality people in the mating pool So if you just choose one and stick with it, you're going to potentially have a higher quality relationship than if you just kind of keep swimming around for decades and you're (laughs) left left with the dregs. I mean, I'm sounding like, like, yeah, but I don't know. I, I mean, you know, because you like me, um, you know, you've been single for a lot of your life. You don't have a traditional domestic life. You don't have children. That's, what everybody was writing about in my anthology choosing not to have children. So, I mean, do you ever think about uh, the degree to which you are an outlier um, when it comes to kind of priorities and uh, what you value about your trajectory?
0: Oh, I do think about it a lot and sort of wonder, do I have anything to say to the general population? Um, but I say I did couple, I had, you know, one of those, like, I guess Pamela Paul called it a starter marriage, um, it, 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 although it wasn't uh, state sanctioned, but I lived with somebody for 12 years, starting in my 20s to, oh, okay. you know, mm-hmm. late 30s. So so I guess in a sense, that would be the first marriage, uh, although, like I said, I was kind of anti-statist, so I didn't seal it uh, officially. But so I guess, you know, if I look back right now on my life, it's been um, a couple of very long-term relationships and, yes, a patch of singledom in in between. Uh, So, and I just, yeah, I just never was as allured with the official marriage certificate uh, that that other people were. But I, I... also do feel like an outlier, particularly because of the not having children and not having wanted that kind of life.
1: We're going to take a quick break so I can tell you about our sponsor, BetterHelp. Let's face it, we're living in challenging times. If you find yourself feeling sad, anxious, or like something's keeping you from achieving your goals or being happy, you are not alone. The good news is that there's an easy, affordable option for counseling, BetterHelp. And as an unspeakable podcast listener, there's also a special offer in it for you. BetterHelp will assess your needs and match you with your own licensed professional therapist. You can connect in a safe and private environment and start communicating with a therapist in under 24 hours. It is not a crisis line or self-help. It is actual professional therapy done securely online. And it's a lot more affordable than traditional offline counseling. If you want to change therapists, it's easy and free to do that. And maybe best of all, you're not just limited to counselors in your immediate area. You have access to therapists from all over. And if there's a particular expertise you need, for instance, someone specializing in family conflicts or trauma, grief, self-esteem, LGBT issues, you can select for that. Now, here's the part for you. As an unspeakable listener, you'll get 10% off your first month by visiting the show's sponsor, BetterHelp, at betterhelp.com slash unspeakable. Join over 1 million people who've taken charge of their mental health at BetterHelp. That's H-E-L-P slash unspeakable. And now, back to the interview. The outlier thing, I, I think that people don't think about this enough. First of all, I think people, y- y- they confuse being an outlier with an outsider. And that's really to- two totally different things. Uh, and I, yeah, I mean, that the not wanting to have children, you know, most people do want to have children and most people have them. So just right there, if you're somebody uh, who's not interested in that, you're, 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 a variant. You're, you know, you're. It's it's not the norm. And there's like, I I love being an outlier, uh, in all kinds of ways, including that way. But yeah, I mean, I'm I'm curious. Like, do you feel like a do you feel like a relationship person or an alone person? <laughs> oh, that's an not interesting hard. question. Not hard because you can be in a relationship yeah. and still feel like it's not your organic state. Maybe.
0: Yeah, I, I, I guess that I would have to say then the alone person, because I am pretty protective of, um, that time. And even, you know, once the pandemic or the first phase was, you know, the lockdown phase was over, I was, I was out of there, <laughs> you know, I was back to my, my own place.
1: you guys were so living in separate apartments. Yeah, actually, we should emphasize yeah. that you were doing the living, living together alone. What is it? Living alone together. Which is apart together or something like that. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah.
0: And, you know, we were about maybe 25 minutes apart um, in New York City on the train um, because I was downtown and he was uptown. And so, yeah, so that had been our arrangement for, you know, a decade until the virus.
1: Yeah. See, that's actually that, that must have been jarring. That actually that must have been really, really hard.
0: It was weird, Um, and you know that period of time and was just a weird, you know, period because, especially in New York City, you just didn't know what was happening, and you know there was this sense of homesteading or you know like not wanting to go out too much and you know provisioning and all all of that. So and you know and the morgues in Central Park and you know it, it was a very weird apocalyptic time in which. Um, I was happy to be coupled because, you know, you didn't know what was happening. I mean, it seemed for a while like the healthcare system was collapsing, or possibly the government. The government was failing. The infrastructure was, you know, I um, mean, you didn't know if you were what things you were going to run out of next. And I mean, it was, it was, it was, you know, for everyone, um, kind of scary. So, uh, you know, let alone for the people who became infected and were hospitalized and all of that. So I was sort of ha- I was happy to be sharing that with someone, however you know neurotic the <laughs> situation was.
1: All right. Well, let's talk about the second chapter or section. Are these chapters or sections? There's there's four there's four main let's sections. Call them the chapters. Chapters. Yes so that chapter is vile bodies heterosexuality and its discontent uh, so here you go you go back into the me too movement which uh the, the me too movement just just feels like it's uh, very far in the in the rearview mirror all, all of a sudden uh and you know this is a subject that you've written about uh quite a bit over the years and you know i'm i'm curious like how how you started thinking about these kinds of larger political and and social movements vis-a-vis your own, your own relationships. Like I, I, I was, I was particularly struck by the way you talk about attractiveness, you know, being, being hit on by someone you judged as unattractive was regarded as more insulting than being encroached on by someone decent looking. Tell me about that.
0: Well, I should say one of the reasons I was thinking about this um, was trying to think about what the effect of this virus will be on us, you know, in the future. And I was thinking about the effect of HIV, AIDS. And I do have this sense as a cultural critic that, you know, the whole kind of context of sex and sexuality really did change after that virus where sex started seeming like something that could kill you as opposed to, and and was, um, as opposed to something that had like almost healthful properties, which was the post-sexual revolution era where, you know, sex was good for you. And so I have like this speculation that Me to probably would not have taken place in the same way it did without this sense, this lingering sense of sex as something harmful, particularly harmful to to women, you know, and injurious and potentially traumatic. And this way the trauma was almost like a residue of a virus, you know, like it stays in your system for life. It doesn't go away once once you uh, contract it. So that was part, you know, it was partly that, yeah, I have been writing on, on Me Too. And I, you know, I'm not sure it still seems that it seems like it's gone away because it's, I think, actually so entrenched in institutions now, you know, in HR departments
1: and Title IX. Oh, yeah, no, that's true. It just, in terms of like a zeitgeist phenomenon, it's been eclipsed by. By the race discussion, that's all.
0: Oh, yeah. I think that's Not sure. Center, yeah. yeah, except at the same time, institutional. I mean, I think you do still see these downfall stories of you know, just like the University oh, yes. of Michigan president in the in the last uh, couple of weeks. So, um you know, so it's I guess it was it was on my mind uh, for for that reason, and then the the attractiveness thing. It was. The conversations that you started having behind the scenes, you know or off the record with friends in that in those couple of years about these experiences of being hit on or encroached on by men and and what people would say what women friends would say about that, and I kind of liked. The kinds of conversations you'd have where people would like look around and make sure no one else was listening. Yeah. Well, those are you the know, best like,
1: those are the only yeah. kinds of conversations I, anyone has with me anymore. So yeah, exactly.
0: <laughs> except here we're in, you know, full view of of the universe. Oh, I,
1: I, I see you looking around. People are still, uh, people are still yeah. lo- look, looking behind them. Yeah. I, yeah. I, I mean, you know, you write, you know, male sexuality itself has been reconfigured as a moral hazard and an existential threat. But that is, I mean, as you point out in that sentence, it's so much more complicated than that. So like, what were the kinds of things women were saying after they got done making sure no one was overhearing them?
0: (laughs) Well, these are in uh, private conversations. Well, like the story I tell about a friend who, and it was this revelation to me, was talking about Having been hit on, she ended up in a limo with a a movie star who hit on her. And she, you know, I mean, to the point that she had to fight him off physically, but she was kind of laughing about it. And, you know, there was maybe even a slight pride in the story of being hit on by the movie star. Whereas then talking about an editor who we both knew who she said had hit on her and she... You know, he was like middle aged, and he, I think she described him as like a potato in horn rims, or maybe it was an eggplant, you know, some
1: vegetable. That could be anybody, though.
0: It, I'm trying to anonymize the, yeah. Um, and, you know, she was just so huffy and insulted about it. And I realized it was because he had made this mistake of thinking that he was in her league. And, you know, so it wasn't just that he, you know, some kind of mild overture. There was this um, status, you know, discrepancy she felt between them, and so that was wasn't. I had always actually. I mean, I was going to say that's an it was an insight into how people think about these things. But I had actually always been fascinated by the role that physique and uh, looks appearance play. I'd writ- once written a very long piece about Linda Tripp and all the ugliness jokes about Linda Tripp. And it starts out talking about the way that, you know, there will never be a socialism of good looks. I mean, that there is something, I think, kind of entrenched about the way we, you know, talk about looks and the way it is a kind of social status. It's a na- Well, of. it's a
1: natural hierarchy that you can't do anything about. Yeah, I yeah. Although, so then would, you could, yeah, you could make the argument that uh, beauty is socially constructed, but I guess only up to a point. You could. You could. You could. <laughs> Feel free. Yeah. Sorry. Uh, and Linda Tripp, just uh, in case any any listener doesn't know, is uh, a woman who was um, a key figure in the Monica Lewinsky scandal.
0: Well, the thing with Linda Tripp is she did something like really morally reprehensible, which was that she betrayed her friend. And then the jokes kind of used her appearance. I mean, it was back to like Grimm's fairy tale because her appearance was seen as kind of on like an equivalent or a a tell about her moral ugliness.
1: Right. It was witch-like. Yeah. Well, I mean, and you know, you talk a lot about Harvey Weinstein and just like the grotesqueness of him, and what role that played into the whole framing of his legacy. I mean, t- t- talk more about that. I mean, th- he was—he was, he was essentially—he has a, a deformity. Does—does does he not? Like, has that been? Established. It's been reported.
0: Uh, I, you know, it was established by a reporter in a periodical called Air Mail that he has some had some sort of disease of the testicles. I can't remember what it's called, and you know, scarring, and he has to take shots to get erections. I guess one of the things that I've been thinking about all along um, with this, all these downfall stories, is. And you know, now we're thinking a lot or about gender dysphoria and transness. I mean, the ways that these guys, particularly the ones that were exposed as such serial harassers in the way that Weinstein was, I mean, the kind of compulsion or tick-likeness of it. But I do wonder if it's, I mean, maybe it's too what banal of a point to call this, you know, that it's about proving one's masculinity. But I mean, that is a kind of like gender dysphoria of its own. You know, this idea that masculinity is something that always has to be proved, proven. And I think femininity, you know, in its classic sense also, I mean, there's an awful lot of work that women do to establish their bona fides, that's how you pronounce that word, you know, as women. So, I mean, I kind of think in a funny way, gender dysphoria is the condition of having a gender. And I was trying to talk about maybe some of the less obvious levels of Me Too that, you know, we're so accustomed to spouting this cliche about um, sexual assault is about power, not about sex. And, you know, but I also think it's about other things than that, you know, including (sighs) compulsion. I mean, I'm not sure, and this becomes a kind of moral question, like if you have some sort of tick like a compulsion like let's say Tourette's or something that's not controllable that and you're not going to be held responsible for uh touching somebody I talk about a instance of having coffee with a guy who had Tourette's and he kept like his tick was touching and he kept leaning over and touching me and touching my shoulder and it kind of migrated down to touching my breast and I didn't know whether to say anything because I didn't know whether he could control it and I have wondered this with. Um, certain figures who get exposed like Anthony Weiner, you know, who, um, you know, was so compulsive in this, in his sexuality that like he, you know, did this stuff that was like obvious that he was being set up by a 15-year-old girl and yet somehow was so intellectually disabled by this compulsion to expose himself that he, you know, couldn't see that. So anyway, I'm just interested in the kind of like way in which all of these things um are played out in these in these scandal stories downfall stories
1: yeah I mean and with the Harvey Weinstein thing I mean I remember when they released it there was audio footage that um Was it Asha Argento or it was somebody who had secretly recorded him, right? When they're sitting in a hotel bar. I can't, it was, it was an Italian actress. Yeah, it was a model. Right. It wasn't, it wasn't Argento. It was somebody. Yeah. And, and I mean, it was just pathetic. He's begging. He's saying, you know, please just come up, please, please, please. I mean, he sounds like a toddler begging his mother for a treat. Like it was, there was nothing, it, 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 Connoted no power whatsoever. Um, it was just nothing but pathetic, and I I found myself really trying to figure out where to place like that kind of moment in the larger context of the power that he wielded. I I, I don't really know what I'm saying, but I I do feel like the 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 patheticness quotient is under examined when it comes to these guys, like jerking off in a plant is not a power move, you know, Louis (laughs) CK asking for, you know, if it's okay, if he masturbates in front of somebody is, it's, it's not, it's, it's weak. It is, it is a, it is a show of weakness, at least objectively. I mean, you can't, you know, for the person who is being asked, obviously there's a million dynamics in play and I, I can see how you would feel cornered, but I just feel like There's so much discussion in the culture about power, and it's much more fluid than a a lot of people seem to be willing to recognize.
0: Yeah, I absolutely agree with that. And then it just becomes a kind of philosophical slash moral question is, how do you talk about agency uh, when what you're also talking about is a a compulsion? So I I don't know the answer, but um, I do think nobody, you know, because these People were so monstrous and acted so monstrously that nobody wants to ask that question.
1: Yeah. I, and I mean, again, is, is being a sex addict a, a compulsion? And is it therefore a handicap? It's like, it's so hard to know. <laughs> right. You can
0: protect it mean, by the addict,
1: It's another one of those uh, terms that has come to me. Yeah. Nothing. Or a love addict, you know.
0: Right. But I should say that I was kind of getting into this partly because I was interested in how contradictory the sphere of heterosexuality has become. And in a way, this goes back to some of the, the dating issues that we were talking about earlier, that, you know, you've also got this context where women are out there, including on apps all the time, you know, hooking up with men that you don't know, and you don't know what their deal is, and oftentimes getting into these um, abusive situations, because, you know, there's a lot of BDSM going on, there's a lot of role playing and um, abusive kind of things. So on the One hand, in the context of heterosexuality particularly, you've got women putting themselves in these incredibly kind of risky situations. And I talk about one that played out on Twitter, while at the same time then kind of maligning male power and taking this political stand against these abusers, people like Harvey Weinstein, while also not being very self-protective in these kind of hookup dating situations. And also there was this thing that I noted going around the internet in, uh, I think it was after Me Too, this thing about big dick energy, BDE, you know, that played out where there's this kind of weird reverence for this old style masculinity, but it wasn't really exactly supposed to be about masculinity, yet it also was about, you know, big dicks as an emblem of something and so just all of these contradictory strands of playing out in in the public so i was trying to put these all together in the same i don't know what essay like chapter
1: yeah i mean do you think the i mean the, the sort of like shallow pop culture analysis would be that the big dick energy phenomenon is a reaction to the sort of emo uh, era and kind of men being sort of emasculated by the culture or trying to be more like women you know i mean we sort of had a version of this uh in in the 90s the kind of uh cowboys are my weakness uh you know the sort of urban woman uh being seduced by the 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 rangy uh rough around the edges uh you know s- steel worker or cowboy or cop or whatever it is I mean Yeah.
0: And and you know, this conflicted position that women are in, particularly women who have some kind of political consciousness, that on the one hand, you know uh your one is, you know, meant to be against male power, while yeah. at the same time, a lot of women find male power kind of hot. And you know, I go back to Kissinger uh, statement about power is the greatest aphrodisiac and You know, I don't think that's not still true. Sorry, that might have been too many double or triple negatives. But yeah, and then how do you talk about the element of agency on the part of women? Because a lot of the women who later testified against Harvey Weinstein actually did go on to have these consensual relationships with him, even after, you know, that's just very complicated. So yeah, I think in ways that make, us all too uncomfortable to really parse
1: and you know you don't really talk about this in the book but i i feel like you would be a good person to ask uh, what do you make of the the kind of rise of kink and bdsm and just the kind of mainstreaming of fetish culture it's it seems generational uh at least at least being out in the open about it feels like a generational phenomenon
0: i yeah well, you know, I wrote early in my career a book about pornography called Bound and Gag, Pornography and the Politics of Fantasy in America. And it was one of the early sort of feminist pro-porn books. But this was before the internet. And I was talking about these all these varieties of porn that were kind of counter-dominant culture, con- counter-dominant erotics and aesthetics like fat porn or trans porn and you know, I thought it was very interesting and kind of counter, I don't know, hegemonic or something, you know, I was interested in it politically. And then I think once porn got taken over by the internet, you know, it just did become, I don't know, not something, I don't, I'm hesitant here because I don't want to sound like some cultural conservative or old fogey. But I mean, I think obviously- Well, it wasn't
1: professional anymore. Let's just, you know, it was like, it was just, there was too much of it. It's kind of like it's crowdsourced.
0: Well, one of the issues is, and I mean, I think I saw this one writing about Title IX and campus sex, is that, you know, you've got all these young guys learning about sex from porn and then trying out the stuff like strangling you know, choking that they see there on women who don't know what's going on and are too naive to know how to say stop, like even on the first date. So I think that there's a lot of porn-influenced sex that's happening um, that I don't think women... Necessarily want, or some do, but maybe don't always want it in the forms that it comes, because it's kind of hard in the middle of heterosexual sex, as it's ongoing, to say stop. I don't like that. I mean, I think that women aren't especially socialized that way, and I do think that, you know, yeah, there's a lot of performative elements in as we hear, you know, the ways people are having sex these days. But I don't think. Perf- performance is necessarily without its reality, you know. So in this case, there was a case where maybe four or so women in Brooklyn, young women writers, feminists, all ended up hooking up with this same guy who was abusive and violent, um, but kind of cute, you know, in a Bushwick writer sort of way. And they let him, you know, they let him do this stuff. And then he would, like, beat them up and they would go back. He'd beat them up, rape them. They would go back. Um, and then they all found out that they'd been beaten up by the same guy. But, you know, I think people use sex also to act out stuff that is um, unpalatable, which includes misogyny, you know, includes hatred, hatred of women. And or both ways self hatred or hatred of men. I think that you know hate can play out in these you know scenarios in in ways that actually is physically real and and harmful
1: yeah that the story of the 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 Bushwick guy, I don't know if he was literally from Bushwick or if you're just saying that euphemistically, like that that really s- stuck out to me because i I just it is so perplexing that all four of these girls would have kept going back to him. I mean, presumably there were even more women who didn't go back to him. So we're talking about the ones that did, but I mean, do you think that, I mean, how much of it is that uh, very complicated, but natural instinct to kind of normalize a, a negative situation by, by, you know, returning to it in an attempt to make it to, to change it so that the earlier kind of assault kind of effectively is canceled out or is it something else as well?
0: I suppose that's true. I, you know, I, it, this is a case, I guess, where you'd want to ask the women that like, well, what did you think was going to happen? I think there is this idea that, you know, and it's this way that kind of like feminism and pro sex kind of sexiness, hotness, all got conflated with this idea that being game, you know, kind of being up for anything, including rough sex, like rough sex became a kind of fashionable thing. and I think there may be this idea that if you say no to that you're
1: you know somehow
0: square or whatever the current or even or even know, somehow phrases. not um,
1: not not sort of inclusive or not sort of moral. I mean the good giving and game. Was that a Dan savage uh, ism, or I can't remember where that came from, g g and g good giving and game. So it's interesting because it's putting game, being up for anything in the same category as being good and giving, yeah, yeah, it's like being a bad sport is um a moral deficit somehow, yeah.
0: saying no would be a moral deficit. And oh, I definitely think that's a you know, factor. Go back to college campuses, you know, that nobody's telling these young women yet. Well, I don't know if nobody's telling them, but it's difficult for them to object, particularly, you know, or even when something just doesn't feel good. And honestly, I don't know how being punched in the face feels good.
1: We're gonna pause here for a short message from me. Are you appreciating this conversation and wishing there were more like it out there? Well, there are lots more right here. Almost 70 of them by now. I do this show every week, and I pretty much do it all by myself. That is why, as much as I'm loath to ask for help—people who know me know this—I am offering this gentle reminder that if you value honest, thoughtful, nuanced conversations with all kinds of people—novelists, scientists, philosophers, comedians, journalists, sometimes even just regular folks with something interesting to say— I hope you'll consider supporting the show in any way you can. One way to do this is by joining our Patreon community at patreon.com slash the You can join for as little as $5 a month. That gives you early and ad-free access to the show, or for as much as $100 a month. And yes, people have done that. There are lots of perks at every level, including if you join at the $10 a month tier or higher, the chance to join our bi-weekly hangout. Where we, and that includes me, get together on Zoom to talk about a recent specific episode of the show. Joining at that level also gets you discounts on your first purchase of official Unspeakable Podcast nuanced AF merchandise. If Patreon is not your thing, you can also make a one time donation in any amount by going to the podcast's webpage at theunspeakablepodcast.com and clicking the donation button. This podcast is a one woman enterprise. I'm not affiliated with any institution, media company, secret investment cabal, or anything like that. I do it because I love it. And if you love it or even like it, I hope you'll consider supporting it in any way that makes sense for you. Leaving a positive rating or review wherever you get your podcasts is a big help, actually. And telling people about the podcast, sharing it with friends, just spreading the word actually means more to me than anything. So thank you for listening to the show, for making the unspeakable worth speaking. And with that, back to the interview. Okay, but let's actually talk about Zelda. Um, she comes in the chapter called Love and Chaos. This this chapter was riveting, but also just made me maybe dizzy. It's it's about this uh, woman. She's a young woman. She's She's Black. She's queer. I'm not exactly sure how old she is. Uh, you say she's a, a millennial. She's certainly a very young millennial, it sounds like late twenties. She's maybe twenty seven or so. I okay. Guess. So yes. Yeah, so she's she's a a young millennial. She this is interesting because she's dealing with women, right? She's not does mm-hmm. she sleep with any men, I don't think, in, in any part of this. But it's still a, a complete a hers. She, yeah, she did sleep right. with a okay. male friend. But this makes it no, this makes it no easier. Eliminating men from this equation really, you know, doesn't, that doesn't do much to to help her out. (laughs) I mean, what would you, tell us more about her.
0: Okay. Well, I was fascinated and I really liked what you said before about, you know, these, these chapters or the conversations became kind of like relationships because I did sort of love talking to her. She's so funny And astute and shrewd and this great sociologist, she is incredibly observant and always making these connections between her own life and these larger sort of social uh, issues and pictures and stuff. But when she started talking, and this started out as a casual conversation, and I was like, she's, you know, starting to talk about Particularly in her case, all these old girlfriends are people that she'd had these sort of serial, slightly monogamous relationships with. In these, ways. like they kept returning. That's like, always been like a lesbian
1: was, thing, though, right? Lesbians always that. cliche. They've lesbians yeah. always stay friends with their lovers, so that's like. A so big, there's
0: always it was always like a new drama. So there was now they were returning and they were making a lot of drama. And she herself is this kind of low drama person. And I was like, wow this is an exhausting kind of life that you're having, but also fascinating. And she was very funny about it, but it was, everybody was kind of constantly stirring up drama, usually using some kind of thing like Twitter. Like, so somebody would post a picture on Twitter and then somebody else would get outraged because like Zelda had been dating this person, but a month ago. And so how could she have now got this new girlfriend a month later? And, you know, but, So I was kind of surprised at how much people were willing to play these dramas out in public that made them seem like needy and uncool. So there was a whole different emotional economy, whereas I think for my generation, there was this idea playing it cool was, you know, made you more uh, desirable. And in hers, it seems like making a scene makes you more desirable. So there were, you know, just this constant way that, you know, as I said, people are using all the digital stuff you could find to, to to create these these dramas.
1: And were they having um in-person arguments as well or was most of it taking place through screens?
0: Both because one of the relationships she had with somebody who was kind of dysfunctional herself but also charismatic and alluring. So that person who I call Heather Um, would be like in the same room with Zelda, like tweeting about how lonely and alone she was. And and Zelda would be there like saying, hey, I'm right here, you know, asking if you're okay. But it seemed like the attention that the girlfriend got from Twitter was more meaningful to her than the attention from somebody in the same room.
1: Oh, my gosh. See, okay, as a person of a certain age do you hear that and just sort of roll your eyes or do you feel sad like what's your kind of visceral reaction
0: i do i kind of feel a bit i don't know fatalistic nihilistic about the role of technology and i talk about her relationships and then i kind of pull back and talk about surveillance technologies in the ways that is the medium of all of our lives and how like when I first went through one of those full body scanners in the airport, you know, you're like outraged about it. And then it starts seeming just like normal. And, you know, all of our lives, we're under constant surveillance from all sides, you know, from these tracking devices we carry that, you know, we also make phone calls on. And I think that there's a way, and I don't want to be a technological determinist, but like, how could our love lives also not be inflected or Determined to some degree by these technologies, and you know, we surveillance has become so normalized uh, in every regard, politically, culturally. You know, and then we watch these shows that are all about watching people being surveilled. You know, like the first Big Brother. um, You know, which which actually was aired right before nine eleven, and you know, we got very used to. After nine eleven, there was this political justification for this intrusion of all of these. Surveillance in technologies, but, you know, there's no moment of our lives were not surveilled. And I started to think about it like that J.G. Ballard, um, I only saw the movie, I didn't read the book, Crash, you know, where people start eroticizing car crashes. And I almost thought that with Zelda and her circle, you know, they're eroticizing surveillance in this way because we have no choice. You know, and it, there is something kind of dark about that, but they were like, it was almost like a performance art. Uh, they were using all this, you know, mutual surveillance and in, in drama as performance art, but it is the backdrop
1: of, of, of all our lives. Like the world itself is a peeping Tom. And oh that's very nice. Oh I have to steal that. Okay. Thank you. you can, yeah, it just came to mind. Yeah, and I mean the other thing about Zelda and her her friends, it, you know, it's these are mostly women doing this. Did you get the sense that they're if they're cuz it, it's really this kind of like hot mess. Like it's like women being really really sort of performing emotion, creating creating drama, you know. And one of the things that you uh, know people I, I guess there was this kind of like meme going around or trope where like a lot of men in dating apps or something, they would say like, no drama, they're looking for a relationship with no drama and they want a woman with no drama. And I remember reading some kind of like Jezebel type of piece or I, you know, saying like, it's saying that you want no drama is a form of misogyny because women are inherently drama creators.
0: Oh, that's interesting. Well, there's this character, you know, because I kind of got to know this cast of characters from her world, who's a guy who I call George. And uh, he reminded me of some figure like in an Iris Murdoch novel, like the troublemaker or the the person who comes to town and like stirs everything up. Because George would always be sending Zelda stuff that he'd seen online that was like about her, like subtweets from an old girlfriend that were about her. So George was there making mischief. So I ended up asking Zelda, well, what's going on between you and George. And she said, oh, nothing. I, you know, I I don't want him. And then I said, well, did you ever, you know, because on this principle that, you know, if you deny something about sex, obviously it's true. And his current girlfriend accused, I guess, Zelda of being after him. And it turned out they had once long ago had a thing. And then it turned out he'd had a thing with women that she'd had things with. And, you know, so this whole, kind of overlapping relationships, but he was, you know, stirring up drama, but in a low key way. And then I guess, you know, for his own entertainment.
1: Yeah. Wow. It is just, it's so the opposite of the way I have ever wanted to conduct a relationship. I'm just <laughs> like, I'm pathologically private. So it's just, I kind of had my my jaw on the floor. I want to make sure I I ask you about your your last book your previous book Unwanted Advances which came out in the spring of 2017 and that came out of a situation you went through on your campus at Northwestern University where a student brought a Title IX complaint against you because of something you wrote uh, it kind of goes beyond Orwellian into the realm of Kafka mm-hmm. to, uh, to to say two cliches uh, but. I, I think a lot of listeners are probably familiar with with this book and with your case, and, and they can go back and, and read about it if they're not. But um, I, I'm curious, what, what have been the after effects? Uh, you, you went through quite an ordeal, um, and I'm imagining you sort of established a reputation for yourself on campus. Uh, what has the fallout been from, from the book and from that whole incident?
0: Oh boy, that's a huge question. Um, you know, it was two students, two grad students, I think egged on by some faculty members, in fact. So, you know, it was quite an education because I think I hadn't really known how much was going on behind behind the scenes on campuses and what kind of rifts were being created or, you know, and I thought it, I'd wrote this article called Sexual Paranoia Comes to Campus for the Chronicle of Higher Education, which took a kind of lighthearted approach to all the new regulations, particularly about faculty student dating. And uh, I thought it was something you could be lighthearted about, which turned out not to be the case. So it was really an education Partly because once this appeared, and then and then I wrote a second piece about being brought up on Title IX complaints, then I started getting, I mean, I got just hundreds of emails from people, a lot of whom had been through some sort of tribunal or accusation or disciplinary process on their own campus around the country, both professors and students. So there was that element where I found out about all this, this kind of hidden, um, these hidden Star Chambers, you know, people started calling it. But also, I guess I got caught up a bit in the whole free speech uh, debates. And I'm still honestly kind of confused by all that. I mean, I became a little bit of a um, seen as some kind of spokesmodel for for free speech on campus. And I'm, I ended up having to really think a lot about, am I a free speech absolutist? Do I, you know, because I People wanted me to kind of sign on for for that uh, political position, and so I still am like go back and forth on a lot of these issues. But so the you know personally, the aftermath of it was that it was in an education, and also I felt like I was walking through these various political minefields. Uh, partly because I think you know I consider myself a left wing feminist, and people on the right. Uh, were trying to take me up and, and, and take up this uh, cause and use it to to bash the left. So it was complicated.
1: And actually, just to, to back up a little bit, what was exactly your point? Or was there any point at all in, in your piece? Were you trying to say that that students who are, you know, of age, obviously, should be allowed, quote unquote, to date? Professors, or I mean, what what did you have a position on this issue? I guess is my question
0: Well, when I wrote the piece, and this is going back to what it have been around two thousand and fifteen, I mean, I think at that point, it would have been my position because, I, you know, I'm somewhat of a libertarian, I guess, a left libertarian, and I'm not in favor of all of this new regulation. And I did think people over the age of consent should have consent. And I did think that this was fundamentally a kind of patriarchal version of feminism, you know, telling mostly women what they can and can't do with their bodies. I mean, at this point, it's something I suppose I've had to rethink. I do not think at this point in time, I think any professor who thinks they can have a relationship with a student is is basically out of their mind. And I, you know, I would not advise it. I, you know, as far as the regulations, I'm kind of agnostic, but I did find out a lot more about abuses of those situations than I knew, and that was not happy um, but I also found out an awful lot about accusations and the culture of accusation on campus that I think is so overblown and, you know, people bringing charges against people for eye contact they didn't like and that that sort of thing. So partly this upswing in regulation has just meant an upswing in accusation and prosecution and people secretly losing their jobs or students being, you know, kicked out of schools and it's, it's ugly and, I, and it's also all done behind the scenes and people don't know about it. But yeah, when I wrote the piece, I was more freewheeling and thought, um, you know, people who are over the age of consent should be allowed to consent to what they want, as long as they're obviously not in a situation where somebody has institutional power over them. And, but those regulations were o- already in place and always had been.
1: But doesn't a professor by definition have institutional power over a student?
0: Well, that is what gets said. And, you know, it depends on the context. I mean, one of the cases I wrote about was a professor in a, one department who'd gone out with a student who was in another, not just department, but school. He actually had no institutional power over her other than that he was older and more successful. So I, You know, this is where I think the whole rubric of power has become a little dumbed down. And, you know, Foucault, who, Michel Foucault, who's talked about a lot in this context, you know, always insisted that power was not just top-down. And there's this cliche now on on campus to the way people talk about power that it's only a top-down thing. And one of the things I was trying to talk about was all the power that, you know, people... Like, for example, students have on campus. I mean, it's far easier now for a student to get a. I've got, I said this and it was controversial. I probably shouldn't repeat it. But, you know, students wield a lot of power as consumers, as accusers. So people without institutional power also have power. And that's partly what you see now is the ways that people have learned to leverage the quote-unquote, powers of the week, let's say, or leverage institutional ac- accusation m- the machinery to bring down people, you know, of supposedly um, more power.
1: Yeah, no, I think that makes sense in, a, in, in the sort of macro. I just, I always, you know, having been a student, having been a faculty member, I'm always just sort of perplexed as to, you know, why somebody is so, why a professor, for instance, would be so desperate to date a student that he or she couldn't just wait till that student graduated. Or like, if it was true love, maybe the student can transfer. I don't know. I just, it doesn't, I, I I never sort of, this. there always seems to be this kind of, uh, it, it always seems to be playing out in this register where like It's so intense. This person just can't help themselves, even though they're really not going to leave their wife. And it's just like as if I think that there is a kind of uh, prototype of a a professor who really sees it. And I'm going to say he as his duty to play the play the role of of male professor to the hilt. And that would mean. Hitting on students and having affairs, and uh, yeah, having it, it all Yeah,
0: yeah. No, I don't disagree that there is this gendered aspect of it. Although I know plenty of women professors that have dated students, um, but you know, just by the way, one of the things I learned is you can get brought up on charges for dating a former student who has actually graduated. Uh, so you know the regulations, and this is partly what I'm against. I mean, these regulations can be applied anywhere and everywhere, and including in a situation like that, that you're taking advantage, you know, supposedly, um, because there once was this institutional
1: power. Relation. Oh, wow. Yeah, well, that's crazy. I mean, because how many couples do you know where the, they met because somebody was somebody's professor? I For mean, sure. Tons. I know tons of couples like that, especially of a certain yeah, well, that's- generation.
0: Yeah, yeah. that's how I started the essay. It was like, you can't throw a stone on most campuses without hitting, you know, such a couple. And uh, are one of those people now deemed, you know, that that was an exploitative relationship?
1: I would never um, see a student in my office with the door closed. And they always want to close the door. That's the thing. They come in there. They, by definition, they, they want to talk to you about the thing that they can't talk about in class. I mean, that's a whole other subject. If you're teaching writing, they're, they're constantly afraid of their classmates, but they come in and they want to shut the door and sometimes cry. And it's like, you got to kind of surreptitiously get up and open the door again.
0: <laughs> well, you know, that is the thing that there are these intimacies that happen in those situations. And, you know, you were saying before, like, well, can't we be disciplined enough to wait till the student graduates? But, you know, I, I think that, you know, there, there are these intimacies and I mean, people are not perfectly, what's the word, disciplined always in these, in these circumstances so i guess i have some sympathy for the more what would you say kind of er- errant kinds of d- desires and you know whatever
1: yes errant ambient yes all those <laughs> things. well getting back to uh, love in the time of contagion um i just want to wrap up by by talking about your your last section you have a coda it's called antibodies and it's a list of sort of Brief uh, testimonials from people, presumably who you surveyed or, or you spoke with. Um, you know, they're just sort of they, they read like little little confessions. So, t- tell me which of those uh, sort of ha- have stayed with you, and and how you decided to put this section in as your conclusion.
0: Well, that was yeah. They were all answers from the anonymous survey, and you know, it was not too systematic. I put in the ones that I found. You know, entrancing in a way, you know, that there were these little glimpses, you know, they were kind of like found poetry, um, little glimpses into people's lives. And I, I just was, I might have said this before, kind of moved about how people had been kind of forced to really ponder in this much larger ex- existential kind of way what does it mean to love or be with a person? You know, and at the same time there were a lot of people that were being driven nuts by the person that they were uh, you know, forced to be with or shelter with and hadn't had, had enough of them. But it was about what it was like to be intimate and um exchange your being with this other person in this like global extinction event, you know, where everything was uncertain. So I I was really grateful. I, I, you know, as I said, I did this as an anonymous survey, but I kind of wish that I could have written back to these people and said, thank you, or asked them more questions. So it was a bit trying to, um, yeah, crowdsource, but also talk about, like, here's this collective, um, and we've collectively been through this experience that is, you know, world-changing and historic and epic, and but it also takes place in these minute, personal, intimate, domestic ways.
1: I hate that the TV is never off, that we only watch the shows that he likes, and so I escaped to my phone and he hates that uh th- there's another one he hates that i bring up the fact that women leaders are doing a better job navigating covid and understanding the dangers so you know there's there's a you know goes from the sort of quotidian to the uh sort kind of existentially profound i suppose <laughs> well laura um this is this has been a great conversation i i want to ask you one last question before you go and uh i don't know if you'll be able to answer it but if you could go back and give your your younger self advice about love and relationships, what would that advice be?
0: Oh, boy, that's tough. I wish you'd sent that to me in advance so I could ponder it for a week or so. Um, I think I might have said to be more generous. Uh, you know, I think that there were situations in relationships that I was in where I was probably not as able to see things from the other person's point of view. Um, So I, you know, I think maybe that, um, that generosity is never, you know, you can never really be too generous. Um, Is that too, does that sound too sappy?
1: No, I think you're right. I mean, I think the older we get, the, the sappier, not sappier, but I think the more sort of I, I think I think forgiveness and generosity uh kind of comes with the territory as you get older i in my it, my younger self would have called that compromising and lowering your standards
0: <laughs> yeah but another
1: way to say it is just uh kind of take people for what they are,
0: yeah, I think so yes,
1: and uh but that's that's one of the hardest things to do in life so um well anyway Laura um congratulations on the book. I just want to say also it's exquisitely written. Just the prose is dazzling and it's a delight to read. So just on a on a on a level of prose um it's it's really uh magnificent. So congratulations. Uh, that means a lot
0: coming from you who is a great writer. So thank you.
1: Well um all right. Well, thanks for uh, being on the podcast and uh, to be continued. I hope That was my interview with Laura Kipnis. She is a cultural critic and essayist and the author of the brand new Love in the Time of Contagion, A Diagnosis. You've been listening to The Unspeakable Podcast. If you'd like to support the show, there are several ways to do so. The first is to join the Patreon at patreon.com slash the unspeakable, where joining at any level gets you early ad-free access to the podcast, and joining at higher levels can get you other things too, like 10% off your first purchase of official Unspeakable Podcast nuanced AF merchandise. If you act fast, you can probably get some merch in time for Valentine's Day. What better gift for your critical thinking honey than a nuanced AF hat, mug, shirt, sticker, or if you're not all that committed, magnet. You can also make a one-time donation to the show, if Patreon is not your thing, by going to the show's website, theunspeakablepodcast.com, and clicking the donate button. Also, last but definitely not least, uh, the paperback edition of my most recent book, The Problem With Everything, My Journey Through the New Culture Wars, is finally coming out February 22nd. The book includes a new forward uh, with some reflections on what's happened in the, uh, yes, just over two years since the book first came out, starting right now. The next 20 people to join the Patreon at the $20 a month level or higher will be eligible and actually just get, you will not just be eligible, but you will receive if you want a personal signed copy of this new edition of The Problem With Everything. That's right. I will sign it for you or for anyone you want and send it to you myself. So again, you can go to patreon.com slash the unspeakable and join our growing community of listeners. That's it for now. I'll be back next week with another super nuanced guest. Thanks for listening. See you next time.